Well, I'm not sure there's much to be said after Ligon Duncan's message. What a rich, rewarding treatment of the great truths of prayer. My own heart was so encouraged by it. But R.C. says I have to speak anyway. So so here we go. I would uh, invite you to uh, turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 11. I have really been asked to direct our thoughts toward how to pray. And in particular, that takes us to how the Lord taught us to pray. And I want to choose the more brief version of this instruction by the Lord we find in Luke, and I want to choose it to make a point which uh, should become clear in a little while. Luke chapter 11, verse 1, and it came about that while he was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation." A little bit of background on what's going on in this context. The reality of personal access to God Himself on an intimate level was somewhat convoluted among the Jews in Jesus' day. They had been taught by the rabbis that God was far off, that God was so transcendent that they could not really experience any kind of intimate fellowship with Him. He was frighteningly unapproachable, and uh, they were used to realizing that no one could actually enter His presence except the high priest on the Day of Atonement, and that only with uh, proper preparation. God appeared on Mount Sinai. The Israelites had seen His presence there accompanied by frightening displays of thunder and lightning and smoke, and because God is, after all, the writer of Hebrews says, a consuming fire. But this had been stretched to, I I think, an, an unfair point in the time of our Lord, because if you go back into the Old Testament, it was very clear in the writing of the Old Testament that God was approachable by His people. We just heard about that with regard to Daniel and that great prayer which he prayed. The rabbis even said, the Holy One yearns for the prayers of the righteous. Psalm 50 and verse 15 says, call upon me in the day of trouble and I will rescue you and you will honor me. Psalm 91, 15, when he calls to me, says the Lord, I will answer him. Psalm 145, 18, the Lord is near to all who call upon him. Psalm 18.6, in my distress I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of His temple and my cry for help before Him came into His ears. Psalm 65.2 says, O thou that hearest prayer, unto thee shall all flesh 
come. And there is an indication that access to God was broader even than just the Jews. A Midrash commentary on Psalm 65 says, A human king can hearken to two or three people at once, but he cannot hearken to more. God is not so, for all men may pray to Him, and He hearkens to them all simultaneously. Men's ears become satisfied with hearing a little, but God's ears are never satiated. He is never wearied by men's prayers. Some rabbis taught that prayer was greater than sacrifice. And some rabbis believe that prayer should be constant, not just when a person is in need. In fact, there's a statement in the Talmud that says, honor the physician before you have need of him. You shall pray, and not just when in prosperity, and not just when in need, rather, but when in prosperity. Before misfortune comes, anticipate and pray, says the Talmud. And when you look at the Old Testament and begin to analyze the components of the prayers of the people of God in the Old Testament, when you see what the Old Testament calls them to do in their prayers, it breaks down to a number of things. Jewish prayers had several elements. First of all, we could say love and praise. Psalm 34, 2, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Psalm 51, 17, O Lord, open my lips, my mouth shall show forth thy praise. And then there was, very closely related to that, gratitude and thanksgiving. Uh, R.C. remarked last night about Jonah's prayer, in which Jonah says in the second chapter in verse 9, I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. This was a very typical way the Jewish people prayed. And the rabbi said, through all prayers, there must be thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is never to be discontinued, they said. There was also in prayer an affirmation and recognition of God's holiness. We are to pray, said one rabbi, realizing that the glory of God is before us as if the Shekinah was present. There is also to be in prayer the affirmation of one's desire to obey God, to please God. And that basically is what Psalm 119 emphasizes, such as verse 103, My tongue will sing of thy word, for all thy commandments are right. Prayer is a celebration of the goodness of God's law and the goodness of His commandments and the eagerness to obey them. Another component that was a part of uh, Jewish praying was confession of sin and the longing for a pure heart. Psalm 26, 6, I will wash my hands in innocence and go about thine altar, O Lord. Psalm 51, that great prayer of confession on the part of David is an illustration and a very familiar one to us. And we're reminded that the psalmist says, who can ascend to the hill of the Lord but he who has clean hands and a pure heart? So the Jews understood the components of prayer which are familiar to us. They also understood that prayer was to be unselfish. The highest Jewish prayers were those offered on behalf of the community. There was a great sense of solidarity among the people of God. They saw themselves as a covenant people, as indeed they were, and they saw God's redemptive purpose as collective on behalf of them all as the seed of Abraham. In fact, one of the things the rabbis used to say was, 
In praying to God, they would say, Let not the prayer of the traveler find entrance to thee, O Lord. Interesting prayer. Let not the prayer of the traveler find entrance to thee, O Lord. Travelers might be praying for fair weather when the people of God needed rain. In other words, God, don't pay any attention to the prayers of the strangers if they interrupt the purposes that you have for your people. So they prayed with a view to collective benediction and blessing. They also marked their prayers by perseverance. They did pray with importunity. They they did pray with pleading. And you see a number of those kinds of things. I I would say that uh, Daniel chapter 9 is a wonderful indication of the pleading of the man of God who goes over the same things repeatedly and, and, and does all those kinds of things that emphasize a heart that is wholly given over to the urgency of this. Another illustration, Moses prayed for the mercy of God even after God said to him in Deuteronomy 3, enough, speak no more to me of this matter. But he kept speaking. In fact, after the sin of the golden calf, Moses interceded for the people of Israel for 40 days. Now, there's some importunity in prayer. The Jews knew what it was to plead with God. And I suppose at the end, the pervasive attitude in prayer that was righteous prayer among the Jews was humility. They often began their prayer, may it be thy good pleasure. Now, the reason I give you just a little bit of a fast rundown on Old Testament prayer is because I want you to know that Jesus here is not giving some new instruction never known before. However we are to commune with God, it is not going to be any different than those who have been communing with Him all along. All the elements that we find in proper Jewish prayers are emphasized and refined by our Lord in His instruction. And here again is a wonderful illustration that He came not to overturn anything. He came not to replace anything but to fulfill And so, in this text of Luke 11, we come to Jesus' specific instruction on how to pray. This can be compared with the other version of this instruction in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 to 13. They are not the same incident. The Matthew account happens much earlier in Galilee. This one, no doubt, in Judea months later. Here again, Jesus is repeating His instruction. And the question that launches it is at the end of verse 1, Lord, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray. They didn't say, please notice, teach us a prayer. They said, teach us to pray. This is not a prayer. This is how to pray. 
It uh, follows that we learn from this a structure to prayer, a pattern that we can follow. This is a model for praying. The Lord is not saying occasionally or daily or once in a while or every Lord's Day at the end of the, uh, the, the prayer that you pray in the pulpit, lead your people in this prayer. He said to them, when you pray, or literally, whenever you pray, pray like this. This is a skeleton that you're going to hang all your praying on. This is a framework that provides the structure for all our prayers. I found it so helpful many, many years ago when I went through uh, teaching the wonderful gospel of Matthew to spend an awful lot of time in the version of this prayer that appears in the sixth chapter and to learn this structure and this framework, which has been the constant structure and framework for my praying ever since. Occasionally, I actually say or sing the Lord's Prayer, but that's not the point. It's not wrong to do that. It's wonderful to do that because you need to be reminded of that structure. But that's only the framework And I want you to see just exactly what this framework is. Because this, dear friends, is what it really means to pray the way Jesus taught us to pray. Which is to say, this is what it means to pray in the Spirit. To pray consistently with the will of the Spirit, who desires that we pray the way we've been instructed to pray. And I know you're going to know many of the things that I'll tell you, but perhaps this will be a a reminder. Let's go back to verse 1 and just get the setting. Came about, very general indicator here. We don't know when or where this occurred. But it came about that while he was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John also taught his disciples. It was a regular part of our Lord's life to be in constant communion with His Father. No doubt the disciples experienced that with Him all the time. But on this occasion, when Jesus is at prayer, they ask Him to teach them to pray as they were hearing Him pray. They must have been watching, they must have been listening. And they wanted to know what was the structure of his own prayers. And they bring up the fact that John, John the Baptist, had taught his disciples to pray. And that was true. Even the Pharisees and the scribes recognized that in John 5.33. They said the disciples of John often fast and pray. It was known then by everybody that John the Baptist's followers prayed. And whoever asked this question said, you know, we ought to know how to pray too. And so to that, Jesus responds, when you pray, no set time, 
no set posture, whenever you pray, present subjunctive, say, say, uh, from Lego in the broadest sense, and here the framework begins. First thing, Father. God is called Father only 15 times in the Old Testament. Never is He addressed as Father in a prayer. God is called Father 65 times in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and 100 times in John. Something has happened to bring God near, to open up this filial relationship among us and this parental relationship with Him. And the Greek is pater, but the Jews use the Aramaic and probably said, Abba, when you pray, start out this way, Daddy, Papa. That, by the way, is still used today in Hebrew-speaking families, the term of tender affection, family love. And rabbis used to note that the first words that a child ever uttered were Abba and Imma. So here is a model, a pattern, a format, a framework for prayer that begins with addressing God in a way that the Jews really never did. Collectively they did, but individually they did not. This invocation says that you have the right to approach God, the Creator, the Sovereign, Eternal, Holy One, and to call Him Papa. To the conventional wisdom of the Jews of that day, this is frighteningly presumptuous. But God is so eager to introduce Himself in this way, and we are reminded again, aren't we, of the seventh chapter of Matthew where God presents Himself as a Father who responds to His people. What man is there among you when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? What if he asks for a fish, he won't give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to good, give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask Him? It's not presumptuous to call God, fa God Father. He wants to be called Father in the most intimate sense, and our Lord Jesus instructs us that's how you pray to Him. In fact, in John 20 and verse 17, Jesus said, Tell the brethren, this is after the resurrection, I go to my Father and your Father. Just an amazing reality. Romans 8.15, Galatians 4.6, Abba, Father, again, is, is Paul's reference in telling us how to approach God. He is our Father. God is not the, um, the apatheia God of the Stoics, uh, unable to feel anything. He's not the atorexia God of the Epicureans, living in perfect, indifferent serenity. He is not the God, say, of Thomas Hardy, who called God the dreaming, dark, dumb thing that turns the handle on this idol show. It's not the God of the deists who wound it up and went away. He is Abba, Father. And that settles the matter of fear. 
And that settles the matter of hope, and that settles the matter of loneliness, and that settles the matter of resources. Every time you pray, Father, you're not lost in the crowd. Think about the story of the uh, loving father. I prefer to call it the story of the loving father rather than the prodigal son because it is really about the love of God for a returning prodigal. In Luke 15, when he comes back, the magnanimous affection of the father for this disobedient child is overwhelming. All he wants is to be a servant, and the father will have none of it. Put the ring on his finger, kill the fatted calf, put a robe on, let's have a party to end all parties. You're that son. That's right, you are that son. And the father's arms are open to you to embrace you and to fall on your neck and kiss you. He is our Father in the truest sense. And that's where all prayer begins. And it means we're not lost in the crowd. And it means He cares and He is the source of everything and His resources are unlimited. Well, let's just call that God as source. That's where we start. But even more intimately, God as Father. Secondly, I want to see the next statement here, hallowed be thy name. Let's just say that's God as sacred. God as sacred. And it's good that this comes right away because we could get a little sentimental with Father, couldn't we? It's really a very important balance. Hallowed be thy name. While we are so thrilled to have this kind of access to Abba, while we can rush into His presence and cry out, Daddy, and lay out all the issues of our hearts before Him, it is also incumbent upon us to understand that His name is to be hallowed. And that is to say, He is to be honored above all things. This is not just long live the king. This is not just God save the queen kind of stuff. This is not a casual bit of religious jargon, although it certainly, um, I suppose, becomes that because of its familiarity to us. This is a statement that recognizes the enormous respect that is required when you enter God's presence. The Jews took this to an extreme level to the point that they would not even speak the name of God. They wouldn't say the tetragrammaton. They they invented ways to refer to God without saying it. It was too holy to speak. We do recognize this at the beginning of our prayers, that we are entering into the Holy of Holies. And while there is familiarity and love and care and a personal relationship of affection and generosity, we are also entering the holy presence of God. 
and you understand that. What does it mean when we talk about His name? Let's just talk about that for a minute. Hallowed be thy name. Do we ever think about that? In 1 Samuel 18.30, I think it is, regarding David, it was said his name was highly esteemed. Does that mean everybody liked the name David? No. The name was synonymous with him, with his character, which had been manifest in his acts. The name stands for the whole character of the person revealed. Uh, All that he is, all that he is that manifests itself in all that he does. So the name of God is simply that which refers to his character, his nature, his attributes, his personality, and his works. Psalm 910 says, those who know your name put their trust in you. If you really know who he is, you certainly are willing to put your trust in him. So His name is all that He is. What we do when we come to God in prayer is affirm the fullness of the glory of His person. Psalm 20 and verse 7 says, Some boast of chariots and some of horses, but we boast of the name of the Lord our God. Jesus in John 17, 6 said, I've manifested your name. What did He mean? He meant I've manifested you, your person, your power, your truth to the men you've given me out of this world. I've put you on display, on exhibit. Jesus revealed what God is, His true nature. God in the past spoke through the prophets. Now He speaks through His Son. So the name is not a title. It's the total of the person. You can think about God's name and names that help uh, us understand the fullness of that name. He is called Elohim, the name that acknowledges Him as Creator, the third word used in the Bible. He is to be acknowledged as the Creator. El Elyon, God Most High, Genesis 14, we read, Blessed be Abraham uh, of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. He is called Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. He is called Jehovah Nisi, the Lord our banner. Jehovah Rapha, the Lord that heals. Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. Jehovah Ra'ah, the Lord our shepherd. Jehovah Tzidkenu, the Lord our righteousness. Jehovah Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Jehovah Shema, the Lord is present. And Jehovah Makadishkim, the Lord who sanctifies you. All of that, all of those names sum up His name. He is also Adonai, Lord. And most wonderfully of all, His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Him, all the character of God is revealed. So when you pray, you go to God as Father, but immediately you become aware as you draw into intimate presence which is made available to you since the veil has been ripped that you are entering the presence of the all-holy God. Hallowed be. When we hear the word hallowed, I don't know that anybody uses hallowed anymore unless you're going through a really old kind of um, musty building. The word has become archaic. It's dropped out of current use. It usually is associated with the cloistered halls, long robes, dismal chants, halos, musty, dim churches, mournfully morbid music, and other traditions. But it's just 
Hagiadzo again. Same word I talked about yesterday, to be holy. So if we could just maybe replace hallowed with holy, we might understand it a little better. Holy be your name. That verb, interestingly enough, is, is very rare in secular Greek, but not in biblical Greek, obviously, because you're talking about God. And what do we mean when we, when we say, holy be your name? We're not, we're not making God holy. He's already holy. We're simply recognizing it. We're treating Him as holy. We're acknowledging His holiness. We're affirming that we recognize His holiness. And that's essential as we come to Him in prayer. The Greek fathers used words that they felt were equivalent to agiadzo. Chrysostom equates it with doxadzo, which means to glorify or to honor. Origen equates it with hypsun, which means to exalt or lift on high. John Calvin said that God's name, that God's name should be hallowed is nothing other than to say that God should have His own honor of which He is worthy so that men should never think or speak of Him without the greatest veneration. So this is a protection against sentimentalism. This is a protection against overuse and abuse of Abba, which is so prone to be sentimentalized. When you go back and find some of the Jewish prayers, some of the Jewish prayers that have been used historically and are still used today, you find, and and I listed all kinds of these once, and I just copied down a few of them. Here's how a Jew prayed in the past, and they still do. If you ever are in an Orthodox environment or even a conservative environment, they'll pray like this, O Lord, Father, and Ruler of my life. They just never end with Father. Or, O Lord, Father, and God of my life. Here's another one. O Father, King of great power, most high, almighty God. Some of you have heard of the Shemina Ezra, which are a series of 18 prayers. They all start this way. O Father, O King. And on the Day of uh, Atonement... There are ten penitential prayers the Jews pray. They are called the Abinu Malkenu. And in those ten prayers, they say this, Our Father, our King, forty-four times. The balance between Abba and God's holiness. They guarded carefully against sentimentalizing God, and so must we. When we hallow God, we are affirming that He is set apart from everything common, that He is set apart from everything profane, that He is to be prized and esteemed and honored and reverenced and adored and glorified and praised and worshiped as the one who is infinitely blessed. So easy to say, hallowed be your name and have absolutely no thought. The truth is, when you pray, yes, 
You go into His presence as Abba, but immediately you're pulled up short to the realization that the absolute priority place in your heart belongs to the glory and the honor of God. And whatever it is that you're bringing in, it is directed at that. Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. That's, that's the model. That's what this is saying. You hallow his name when you believe he is who he is. Hebrews 11.6, him that comes to God must believe that he is, must believe that he is who he is. And who He is is clearly revealed in all the wonder of the names that make up His name. It was Origen who wrote, the man who brings into his concept of God ideas that have no place there takes the name of the Lord God in vain. Origen was right. If you're going to go into the presence of God, you go into the presence of the God who is the God He is. That's why R.C. said yesterday, it is such a horrific heresy to redefine God as the openness theologians are doing. We hallow His name when we worship the God who is the God He is. And the God He is also includes that He is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We hallow God's name also when in view of who He is, we desire His glory to the extent that we come into His presence first and foremost to submit to Him. It was Luther in the Catechism who said, how is God's name hallowed among us? When both our doctrine and our life are Christian. Don't say, hallowed be thy name, and then go out and dishonor God. The prayer is not just that God's name be hallowed in Him or that God's name be hallowed in our words, but that God's name be hallowed in us. So what I'm saying is, Father, I come to you with my need as the source. I come to you thanking you for intimacy, but I come to you to hallow your name. That is to submit myself to that which brings you glory and honor. Augustine said, it's not that God's name is not already holy, but we pray that men may regard it as holy and that God may become so near and dear to us that we esteem nothing more reverent than Him. Prayer begins clearly with us being on our face. The prayer that God would use His fatherly goodness and His eternal riches at His disposal on behalf of His people to glorify Himself for us and through us. 
Romans 11:36 for uh, from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever amen There's a next phrase and if you're wondering if we're going to get to the full prayer probably not but that's okay The third element here is thy kingdom come This looks at God as sovereign That's critical in your prayers. You come to God as a loving Father who's the source of everything you need. You come to God as sacred, absolutely holy, and pursuing His glory. And you come to God as utterly and completely sovereign. Immediately after the celebration of intimacy and the celebration of worship, Come submission. Do whatever advances your kingdom. That's the point. Do whatever advances your kingdom. Here I am, Lord. I have one prevailing request. Do whatever advances your kingdom. And as you heard last hour, God does what He does because He purposes to do it, but the means by which He does it is our prayer. Just as God saves us because He determined to save us, but the means by which He saves us is our faith. Do whatever advances your kingdom. The Talmud says that prayer in which there is no mention in the kingdom of God is no prayer at all. The uh, vain repetition of the Pharisees and the scribes somehow seeking to badger God into doing what they wanted is a far cry from what our Lord is telling us here. The kingdom of God was a central matter in his preaching. I don't want to get too technical. Let's make it real simple. The kingdom of God is the sphere over which God rules, right? And there are two kingdoms of God, two elements of it. There's the universal kingdom. That is to say, God is the ruler of the entire universe. But there is the redemptive kingdom, and that is to say, that is the kingdom of those over whom God rules by virtue of salvation. And so what we say is, God... Whatever it is that brings the fullness of your redemptive purpose to pass, do that. Jesus came preaching the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. He was sent by God, He said, to preach the kingdom, to announce that the kingdom was in their midst, the kingdom was available, the king was gathering His people, He told them how to come into the kingdom, He told them what it required. He said the kingdom already existed because Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and all the prophets are in the kingdom. And he said in Luke 17:21, the kingdom's in your midst. And he was talking about the salvific kingdom, the realm of salvation over which God rules. And we really are saying, Lord, I just want you to do what builds your kingdom and brings you glory through salvation. You're praying for the advance of the gospel. You're praying for the salvation of the lost. Let your kingdom come down. In the prayer in Matthew 6, 
which I purposely didn't use because I wanted to use this one to make it clear to you that this is not a formula, it's a structure, and that's why the two are not the same. But in that prayer, in Matthew 6, he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What's going on in heaven? What's going on up there? The exaltation of God, the worship of Christ, and the dominance of holiness. It's where God is praised and worshiped by the saints. And this is a prayer to bring that down. Bring heaven down. That's why I've been saying for years the church is not to be the place where the world comes in. It's to be the place where heaven comes down. That's what we're praying for. Bring your heavenly kingdom down. Build your kingdom. Exalt yourself. Exalt your son. And the true church is the answer to this prayer. You're the answer to this prayer. I think you would, you would say that immediately if I said to you, would you want to pray something that was contrary to the redemptive purpose of God? Oh. Well, then this is how you line up. God, before I ask anything for myself, you know there are no personal requests yet. Have you noticed that? Okay. Before you ever get to that, You've got to go through this. This is the structure. By now, you're so lost in wonder, love, and praise, your next words are probably going to be, the rest I leave to you. I mean, you're almost there, right? There is a, there's an utter yielding up at this point. Glorify yourself. Lift up the Son that He may draw your own. Build your kingdom. I want you glorified. I want Christ exalted. Paul understood this. He gave his life, he said, purposefully so that people would believe. He said to the Corinthians, and their praise would redound to the glory of God. I mean, his whole life was given to add one more voice to the hallelujah chorus that God might be glorified. You're really praying redemptively here for the purposes of salvation to be fulfilled. In uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, it says, uh, God, our Savior, desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And this is God's purpose, that those whom He has called would come to salvation. What's our part? I entreat, or I urge that entreaties, prayers, petitions, thanksgiving be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority in order that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior who desires men to be saved. What are we praying for? We're, pray we're not praying for the political wisdom of people. We're praying for their salvation. Pray. 
say, well, God already knows what he's going to do. But again, the means he uses to do what he does is our prayers. As you heard in the last hour, Daniel was praying because God had already revealed what he was going to do. And yet I want to add something here. You can't cave in at this point. You can never really make a truce with evil. You can never be indifferent to the lostness of the world. I mean, Jesus is weeping over the city of Jerusalem. Paul says, if I, if I could, I literally would wish myself accursed for the sake of my brethren. You can never be resigned to a passive attitude. There can never be some kind of gray acceptance of the way things are. You can never let your theology stifle your zeal for intercession. David Wells wrote, what then is the nature of, uh, of petitionary, let's make that right, petitionary prayer? He said this, it is, in essence, rebellion. It is rebellion against the world and its fallenness, the absolute and undying refusal to accept as normal what is pervasively abnormal. It is in this its negative aspect, the refusal of every agenda, every scheme, every interpretation that is at odds with the norm as originally established by God. As such, it is itself an expression of the unbridgeable chasm that separates good from evil. It is the declaration that evil is not a variation on good, but its antithesis. Or to put it the other way around, to come to an acceptance of life as it is, to accept it on its own terms, which means acknowledging the inevitability the way it works, is to surrender a Christian view of God. This resignation to what is abnormal has within it the hidden and unrecognized assumption that the power of God to change the world to overcome evil by good will not be actualized. What he's saying is we have to rebel. That's why Jesus said at all times, pray and do not lose heart. And that's why in the next text you're going to hear about importunity and about perseverance. We rebel against evil in the world. We rebel against the dishonor of God and the dishonor of Christ. I remember reading about Henry Martin, the missionary in India, who first came there, went to a temple where the Hindus were worshiping with sacrifices, and it was a vile experience, and he ran from that experience, and he went to his room and took his journal and wrote this, I cannot endure existence if Jesus is to be so dishonored. I think we understand that. We never come to a truce with that. It isn't that we distrust the purposes of God. It is that we share the passion of God. It is that we are prompted by the Spirit of God to feel the way He feels. Psalm 69.9, the psalmist writes, zeal for your house has eaten me up. The reproaches that fall on you have fallen on me. What a statement. He's saying, God, when you're dishonored, I feel the pain. And Jesus experienced it, didn't he? He went into the temple and he cleaned the place out. And in a sense, he said, I'm the fulfillment of Psalm 69, for he quoted it, zeal for your house has eaten me up. But what is the passion of that prayer? 
the passion of that prayer is that God would not be dishonored, that Christ would not be dishonored, that the kingdom would come, that salvation would come, that the Lord would build His church, that He would be glorified. This turns prayer into worship of the highest kind from the heart, a passion for His glory. When prayer is um, used as a device for eliciting health and success and other favors from some celestial vending machine, is this Christianity? I think not. Jim Packer said, The prayer of a Christian is not an attempt to force God's hand, but a humble acknowledgement of helplessness and dependence. Well, verse 3, we get to our side of this prayer. Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins. But we also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. Once you put God in a rightful place, you can get to you. We don't have time to develop all of this, but suffice it to say, each of these requests is tied to a promise. Each of them. The Old Testament says, I've never seen God's people begging what? <laughs> begging bread. The New Testament says, my God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in Christ Jesus. God already promised to give us everything we need. Seek first the kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And in uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he says, don't worry about giving. Don't worry about giving generously. Sow bountifully, reap bountifully, and God will give you bread for your food. So why are we asking? Because you always ask consistent with divine promise, as you heard so well stated in the last hour. And the second one, forgive us our sins, that is based on a promise. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and still righteous to forgive our sins. Do what you said you were going to do. Meet our physical needs. Sustain our lives until our lives fulfill your full purpose. Forgive our sins the way you said you would. Our violations of your holy law. Forgive the debt we've incurred with you. As we desire to do the same for others. He knew God was his supplier. He knew God was his savior. He being any believer who comes to the foot of the the cross. She knew God was the source of everything. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights in whom there's no variableness nor shadow of turning. We all know that. 
God is not only our supplier and our Savior, He's our safety. We know that. The end of verse 4, lead us not into temptation. Is God going to lead us into temptation with a view to exposing us to the evil one, as Matthew 6 says it? Is He going to purposely lead us into a temptation so that we can fall? No. God doesn't tempt, James 1, does He? God doesn't tempt. He allows us to go into parasmos, trials, but He allows trials so we can be strengthened, not so that we can be crushed. We know He's going to feed us. We know He's going to forgive us. And we know He's going to protect us and direct us in paths that produce righteousness, not sin. So what we're really praying for is what He's already promised. It's a very simple prayer. Lord, You're the priority. And when it comes to me, all I ask is that You fulfill Your promise on my behalf to sustain my life for Your glory, to forgive my sin for Your glory, and to protect me from the evil one for Your glory. So whatever it is that You do about this illness or whatever it is that you do about this dilemma or whatever it is that you do about the suffering and the pain, Lord, may it honor you and may it manifest the fulfillment of your promises. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, so much more needs to be said about this, but we do come to You as our gracious and loving Father. We do hallow Your name. We seek Your glory. We remember the words of our Lord Jesus, whatever You ask in My name, that will I do in order that the Father may be glorified in the Son. It's really about you and then about us, only insofar as what happens to us glorifies you. May we pray as worshipers, always for your glory. We thank You for this access, this open door, and may we live in this constant communion which You've made available to us. Be glorified, O God, through our lives as You hear and answer our prayers. We pray in your son's name. Amen.